Tonight, we're going to begin in the middle of Philippians chapter 2, and we're going to continue all the way to the end of the chapter. Uh, perhaps we might be just a little bit uh, shorter in the study tonight, because we're not considering so many verses. And to be honest, the passage that we're going to go through tonight is not as theologically majestic as the 11 verses that we just considered. I, to be honest, I don't know if there's any passage in the New Testament that is as theologically majestic as the 11 verses that we considered the last time. But it's important for us to understand the flow of the book of Philippians. Paul, of course, had a warm relationship with the church at Philippi. He had founded the church. Um, he had endured great persecution there, yet also had seen great miraculous works when God had miraculously freed him from the Philippian jail, and the jailer and his family and many others came to Christ, and yet he had to flee the city under the threat of persecution at some time later. Well, Paul had traveled about the Roman Empire since founding the church at Philippi and had kept in close contact with them. The Philippians had such a warm, open heart towards the Apostle Paul that they supported him financially, and not only financially, but with practical help as well. When they knew that he was in prison in Rome, they sent one of their own, uh, well, we would probably call him a staff member of the church, some leader, some prominent man in their church, a man named Epaphroditus. They sent Epaphroditus to Paul in order to sort of be an assistant, a helper, a, a, a butler, I don't know what you would want to call it, just sort of an all-around assistant or helper to Paul there as he was imprisoned in uh, the city of Rome. Well, during that time, uh, Epaphroditus naturally told Paul about what was going on in the Philippian church, and he gave greetings, of course, from everybody, but he told him about some uh, at least small-scale problems, maybe some potential problems that might build into greater things. And Paul addresses some of those in his letters, as we saw uh, last week, th this great plea for unity that Paul gave them, and this great plea for unity in light of the example of Jesus Christ on behalf of believers. And as he spelled out that great example, he gave us that passage that we saw last week in those first 11 verses of Philippians chapter 2, where he talks about all that Jesus emptied himself of and all that Jesus gave up, how he climbed the ladder down from the throne of God, all the way down, not just to earth, but to earth as a regular man, and not just a regular man, but a man who died a uh, horrible death upon a cross for our sakes. And he, he brought this example towards them, both of the humiliated and of the exalted Jesus Christ as a great example, promoting the unity among the Philippian believers. So understanding that, verse 12 makes perfect sense. He's just a given, he's just given the great example of Jesus in his great work. So now in verse 12, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, again, I don't want you to miss the connection here. Just in the previous verses, Paul has been explaining the tremendous obedience of Jesus Christ. And of course, when we consider this, it is absolutely staggering to think that Jesus, in his earthly ministry, completely submitted himself to the will of the Father. And he did nothing upon his own initiative, but everything as an act of submission and obedience to the Father. Jesus really became for us uh, an amazing uh, example and fulfillment of submission and obedience. 
So now Paul has made that statement about Jesus. Now he calls upon Christians to do as Christ did. Again, I'll read it again. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So uh, there's a connection between the obedience that Jesus showed and the obedience that Paul expected of Christians as followers of Jesus. And so he tells them, work out your own salvation. Well, I think that's a remarkable statement there, isn't it? I would say, first of all, it's a statement that it is very possible could be taken in a very wrong way. Lord, help us. If any of us believe that this is a verse that Paul would write to an unbeliever. Can you imagine Paul writing that to an unbeliever? Paul telling someone who is not yet a Christian, now listen, you need to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. We can't ever imagine Paul saying that to an unbeliever. Instead, Paul would say to a non-believer, listen, you need to receive salvation from Jesus Christ. You need to put your trust in him and receive the, the free gift of God. We know this from what Paul has said repeatedly in Romans and in Galatians in particular. But Paul would never give this address to unbelievers. Rather, he writes this to Christians who are already saved. This is not written in the attempt to gain salvation, but to those who are already saved. And he says, salvation, as it were, has been worked in you. Now work it out of you with fear and trembling. I could say in this sense, what Paul is really getting at is he's telling the Philippian Christians and us, of course, these many centuries later, he's telling us to put forth real effort into their Christian life. Now, I suppose that sometimes this is a deception that Christians fall under. Uh, maybe it's a, it's a twisting of the gospel of free grace that we all understand and that we preach and we're happy to preach and we're excited to preach. But sometimes when Christians hear that, you know how Satan wants to put a little false spin on something. It's a glorious gospel truth, but maybe a false spin can, can bring a misunderstanding or a misapprehension of the Christian life. And this misunderstanding is simply this, that, that well, you're freely saved. It's all the free gift of God. Therefore, I don't have to put any effort into my Christian life. No. Paul says, work out your own salvation. Now, there's a sense, of course, in which our salvation is complete. And it's complete in the sense that nothing can be added to it. Jesus has done a complete work for us. I hope nobody doubts that. I hope everybody understands that when Jesus hung on the cross and said those amazing words, it is finished, that it truly was finished for our salvation, that our salvation is, is based in what Jesus did on the cross, not on what we do for ourselves. And so there is an absolute sense, or I shouldn't say there, there is one sense, perhaps it's better for me to say, in which our salvation is complete in the sense of what Jesus did for us. Nevertheless, there is still also a sense in which our salvation is incomplete, in that it is not yet a complete work in us. We, we might say it this way, that the believer must finish, that he must carry to conclusion, he must apply to the fullest extent what has already been given by God to him in principle. He must work out what God in his grace has worked in. 
course, you might expect that Charles Spurgeon has some profound things to say about this, and of course he does. Listen to this wonderful quote by Spurgeon on this text. He says, Some professors appear to have imbibed the notion that the grace of God is a kind of opium with which men may drug themselves into slumber, and that their passion for strong doses of sleepy doctrine grows with which that they feed on. God works in us, they say, therefore there's nothing for us to do. Bad reasoning, false conclusion. God works in us, says the text, therefore we must work out because God works in. You know, you might say here, and it isn't just said by me, the notable Greek scholar A.T. Robertson pointed out here, that he's exhorting as if he were an Arminian in addressing men. He he prays as if he were a Calvinist when he addresses God, but he feels no inconsistency in the two attitudes. He says, I'm going to speak to men as if I'm Arminian, but I'm going to speak to God as if I'm a Calvinist. Paul is making no attempt to reconcile divine sovereignty and human free agency, but he boldly proclaims both. So he tells us, you work out your own salvation. And maybe we should just pause for a moment and consider the end part of that phrase, your own salvation. Oftentimes, I'm much more interested in working out your salvation than I am my own, right? I'm much more interested about your sin than I am mine. I, I know I'd rather confess your sins than I'd rather confess mine. Isn't this the tendency with us all? I I think of what Paul wrote to the Thessalonians. He wrote it to them very strongly. He said, mind your own business. You have your own business to pay attention. Now, it, it isn't that we should have no concern for the salvation of others. I think it's appropriate that we do. We should make the souls of, of other men and women our business. But nevertheless, first work out your own salvation. Sometimes we show a great concern for the work of God in others and not enough concern for his work in us. And I like how Paul put it here. It's actually very powerful what he says there in verse 12. It says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not only, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. So Paul says, I, I know you had this heart when I was with you. Could you please have it all the more now that I'm gone? Again, he's talking about a Christian work ethic, not a works ethic, but a Christian work ethic. I I would make a difference with that one little S at the end. A Christian works ethic says, I need to earn my way before God. Friends, we live in the grace of Jesus Christ. Let's put that attitude forever away from us. You don't need to earn your status or your standing before God. It's received by grace through faith. Nevertheless, Having received that grace, we want to work for God. And so we have a Christian work ethic, not a works ethic. Maybe the end part of the verse is is worthy of note as well, where he says, But now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. I don't think anybody could say that Paul's idea here was that we should live our Christian lives with a constant sense of fear and terror as if God was about to smite us at any moment. But rather, I think he's saying that we should live with a fear of failing to work out your own salvation. God, you've given me so much in Jesus Christ. Look at what you've put in me, God. You've given me a new nature. You've filled me with the Holy Spirit of God. The the Bible says that I have the mind of Christ, that the Spirit of Christ dwells within me. I have a new nature uh, fashioned according to the likeness of Jesus Christ. I'm an adopted son or daughter of God. 
I am the, the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ. You think about all that God has put in you. We should have a legitimate fear of not living that out. I saying, God, you've worked so much into me. I want to work out my salvation. And, and I, I live in some measure of fear and trembling of not doing it. And so we do it with fear and trembling, but it doesn't have to be the fear of hell or the fear of damnation. I don't think that's what Paul had in mind at all. Instead, when he says fear, I think it's the righteous and awe-filled reverence of God that every believer should have, and every believer should especially have, in fear of falling short of what God has given him to be and to do. It doesn't have to be the trembling of a guilty sinner. It could instead be the joyful trembling of an encounter with the glory of God. So we work out our own salvation with fear and trembling, but it's almost wrong to stop at verse 12. You really need to continue it on right to verse 13, right? Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. I love this. I I love when Paul speaks in this manner. It's, It's as if... Paul the Arminian writes verse 12, and then he puts down his pen, and Paul the Calvinist picks up the pen on the other side. He writes verse 13. And of course, I want you to see there is no division between the two, is there? Paul could see both of them side by side. He could see the glory of God's work in us and how it's, it's God's work to will and to do within us. And Paul had no problem with that. And at the same time, he'd look at you just like an Arminian and say, you work out your salvation now with fear and trembling. It's a beautiful thing that Paul speaks of this. You see, Paul here gives the reason why Christians must work out their salvation with fear and trembling. It's because God is working in them. And that's a great comfort, isn't it? God who works in you. When you think about it, if God is working in you, then all sufficient grace is working in you. Then, then there's sort of like a living fountain in you, a constant bubbling and outpouring fountain in you. That then, then if you were draw from that fountain all the time, draw from the fact that God is working in you. I think every Christian might have a very different attitude if they would just say, you know, God is working in me. Now, how do I cooperate with that? How do I make the most of that in my life? I don't have to persuade God to work in me. God is working in me. I just want to get along with the flow of what God is working. And so again, we come back to the idea that since God has done and is doing a work in the Christian, that the Christian has a greater responsibility to work diligently with fear and trembling regarding their own salvation and work with the Lord. Let me put it to you this way and think carefully on this point. God's work in us increases our responsibility to work. It doesn't lessen it in any way. Join the two verses together. The fact that God is working in you should be a motivation to you to more work. Again, I want to say it's a wicked attitude to adopt this sort of fatalistic idea. You know, it's the Lord's work. It's not my work at all. And so, Lord, why don't you do all the work? I'll lay down and spiritually slumber, so to speak. You know, those that take God's sovereignty and and the fact that God works in us, those who take it as an excuse for inaction and lethargy, you know what they're like? They're like the wicked and lazy servant of the parable that Jesus gave in Matthew chapter 25, verses 24 through 30. Do you remember that parable? In Matthew 25, Jesus gave a parable about some servants. That's the parable of the talents, right? 
And Jesus gives talents to several of the servants, and he says, well, I'll give this servant, I don't know, I can't remember, what was it, 10 talents to one servant? And the servant invested them and did quite well and brought back the reward to the master. And the master said, well, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. And then the servant, he gave five talents. You know, wow, he went out and he did his work too. And then the servant who was only given one talent, what did that servant do with it? Nothing. He buried it. Did you ever notice the excuse that that servant gave for doing nothing with his talent. This is what he said. Master, I knew that you were a hard man. I knew that you're the kind of guy who reaps where he does not sow. And he gathers where he has not scattered. And so I didn't do anything with my talent. Do you understand what the servant said there? Master, you reap where you haven't sowed. You are so powerful, you don't need my work at all. I'll just sit back. I'll do nothing because you're so powerful. And what did the master say to that servant? He said, you wicked and you unrighteous servant. You see, we should never use the sovereignty of God as an excuse for inaction, for inactivity. No, rather we say, God is at work that increases my responsibility to work. And those who are really God's servants use their understanding of his sovereignty and his omnipotence as a motivation for greater and more dedicated service to him. A matter of fact, if you want to talk about the sovereignty of God and his omnipotence, I don't know if it gets much stronger than this statement that Paul makes here in verse 13, where he says, For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Do you understand what he's saying right there? God's work in us extends to the transformation of our will, as well as changing our actions, both to will and to do. Now, I think it's absolutely wonderful when you think about that. I really want to serve you, Lord. I really want to please you and obey you. Where did you get that desire? God worked it in you. Now, may I point out that this shows us how God works often? Were you consciously aware that God worked that desire in you? No. Matter of fact, as far as your experience told you, you, you did it yourself, right? You, you, th- that's how it felt to you. But Paul says, listen, even though it felt to you, and even according to your experience, that, that, that it was something that you cultivated or, or promoted within yourself, I'm here to tell you that God was behind that work even so. And it just makes us stand back and say, Lord, you can work even when I don't know you're working. You, you, you're aware even, or excuse me, you're present and you're powerful even in what seem to be the decisions that I make for myself. It shows us that God really is a, a, an amazing, sovereign, outreaching God. And he does it all, if you notice at the end of verse 13, it's God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. That's the motive behind God's work in our life. He does so because it gives him pleasure to do it. Lord, why why are you working this way in in his life? You know, why are you building him? Because it's my good pleasure to do it. And we just want to cooperate with that good pleasure of God. Now, you would think that after this really majestic statement that maybe Paul would go off on another summit peak of theology, right? 
because he's really given a very high theological statement in verses 12 and 13 about God's work in us and our work with him, this great partnership that we have between us and God and the way that we're supposed to, you know, God is doing a work and it's his sovereign work. Nevertheless, we're called to work right alongside with it to the utmost of our ability to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. But then Paul sort of shifts the gears just a little bit. Because really he's drawing on what he's developed before, but just a little bit he shifts the gear starting at verse 14 and he gets real practical with the life. Again, this doesn't surprise us. Because when you say, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, we sometimes want to over-spiritualize that, don't we? Work out my salvation. Okay, I'll go to the monastery and I'll just spend a couple weeks there, and I'll take that vow of silence I've always wanted to take, you know? And, and the, the, the hooded robe, man, that's it, you know? And then, oh man, then I'll really be drawn close to God, and, and I'll really, really, you know, work out my salvation then. And listen, I'm saying maybe God would lead you into such a thing. I, I can't say that he wouldn't, but, but I, I want you to relate a very practical way that Paul tells you to, to work out your salvation here with fear and trembling. It's stop complaining so much. How about that? Look at verse 14. Do all things without complaining and disputing that you might become harmless or blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life so that I might rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run or labored in vain. Isn't it wonderful? Oh, Lord, I just want to see you do a great work in my life. And oh, I just long to be filled with the fullness of Christ and walk in the glorious magnitude of his of his omnipotent presence. And, and you're, you're pouring out all of that before God. And he says, why don't you pay some attention to the way you talk to people? Oh, OK, Lord. Well, this is it, isn't it? This is what you might call shoe leather Christianity. This is right where it hits the road here. And so he says, do all things without complaining and disputing. Now, I have to say, when you read the commentaries on this passage, there's actually a great deal of of dispute. He says, do all things without complaining or disputing. The commentators love to dispute on this passage. They love to dispute whether or not this complaining and disputing is talking about complaining and disputing among believers or whether it's complaining and disputing uh, from believers unto the Lord. And I think, why can't it be both, really? I mean, both of them go together, right? If you've got that complaining heart towards God, it'll be manifest towards other people. But really, if you have a very settled, satisfied heart before the Lord, I think that's going to show in your activity towards other people. Now, I, I think there is a connection between the complaining and disputing and their relationship with the Lord, because it's very interesting. Paul seems to be drawing on specific language from the Old Testament, from the children of Israel when they came out of Egypt. He's, he's quoting some Old Testament passages here in the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible known as the Septuagint. He's quoting it right here. And it seems that, that the emphasis might be on their relationship with God. Don't complain with God. Don't dispute with God. But nevertheless, I think there's things that we shouldn't complain and dispute about with one another as well. Spurgeon gave three examples of things that we should not murmur or complain against. Number one, you shouldn't complain against the providence of God. Oh Lord, why are you doing this? Oh Lord, what is your plan? Don't complain against it. God knows, right? Why complain against the providence of God? But then also, we shouldn't complain and dispute against one another. No, we shouldn't. You know, there's too much of that, right? 
There's too much of the thin skin. There's too much of just the complaining and the disputing. And isn't it funny? You, you, you never really realize how much damage your complaining can do. We often measure our complaining by how much damage it does in us. But, you know, complaining is an interesting thing. It's, it's sort of this, these germs, you know, that you go and you spread about to other people. And you know what? Your system may be strong enough to where you don't come down sick with those germs. But you're spreading them out to other people. And you don't know how your complaining might be affecting others. Honestly, it might not be much of a spiritual downfall for you. You don't get all tripped up in it. You don't get into this, this cross attitude of mind and spirit. But you never know about the other people that you've spread that complaining spirit to. So we, we shouldn't complain and dispute against the providence of God. We shouldn't complain and dispute against one another, but neither should we complain or dispute against an ungodly world, right? We shouldn't be complaining all the time about the world. Look, it's bad. It's wicked. What's more to say about it, right? It, it, it's wicked, and it's probably going to get wickeder. All right, well, that's the end of the story. What's to complain about past that? Matter of fact, when you look at this in the uh, ancient Greek, the, the, as Paul originally wrote it, The emphasis falls on the words, all things. Those are actually the first words of the verse in the ancient Greek text. It's as if he says, all things do without complaining and murmuring. That's the emphasis right there. And so we're just not supposed to dispute with God. We're not supposed to dispute with other people. We're supposed to have a very calm heart, peaceable with all men. Uh, To what effect? We'll look at it as he goes on here in verse 14. He says that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault. You see, through this display of a non-contentious, non-complaining spirit, we show ourselves to be true followers of God. You know, our ability to endure hardship, our ability to endure difficulty can be a tremendous testimony to other people. I think of those great German Moravian saints who were on the boat with John Wesley when it was making the trip from England all the way to the colonies in the New World in America, and how he saw that these Moravians were mistreated and mocked by all the people. He saw that they were given the lowest jobs, and they performed them cheerfully. He saw that when they would be humbled, they they wouldn't bother them at all. They just smile and say, well, you know, it's terrible work. I'm glad we're here to do it. And that kind of spirit and that kind of attitude. And that had an incredible impact upon John Wesley. When he saw that they could even face a terrible storm and even their women and children were not frightened, but just sang hymns with the rest of them, even though their lives were in great peril, doing all things without complaining and disputing, it was a tremendous testimony to John Wesley. And of course, it'll be a testimony when we do it to other people as well. So we should be blameless, harmless, children of God without fault. And then I like how he continues the idea here in verse 15, where he says, uh, children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you must shine as lights in the world. Well, I love that. First of all, he gives the figure here of the shining lights, but the shining lights set in the midst of a crooked and a perverse generation. You see, this was an encouragement to do something. He he, he says, listen, I want you just simply to shine with the light that God has given you. For some reason, I don't think that a light has to put forth much effort to shine, right? It It just is what it is. 
As long as the flame keeps burning, as long as the flame keeps the oxygen coming, right? As long as the flame keeps the temperature where it should be, as long as the flame keeps some kind of combustible material there, that's about all I know about fires, but those three things have to be there. As long as the flame keeps that, then it burns. And as it burns, it shines. And that's what they're called to do. Shine as lights in the world. It's very interesting, though. The idea might not be so much of a flame, But the great Greek commentator, Dean Alford, said, actually, he doesn't mean lights, but he means luminaries in the sense of heavenly bodies. He's talking about lights as they would hang in the sky. He means shine like the moon or shine like the stars or shine like a brilliant planet in the night sky. We're to fulfill our place in the lights in the world. You almost have the idea that Paul's thinking of one of those very, very black nights where the stars shine brilliantly. And the moon seems so big. And you can even make out the planets with the naked eye because the, the, the night is so dark and the stars are so bright. And he says, that's how I want you to shine in the midst of a dark world. That's exactly how we should live, as lights. You know, if you think about it, light is a great illustration of just exactly how we're supposed to be and how we're supposed to conduct ourselves as Christians. Lights are used to make things evident, right? Well, that's what we should be doing in our Christian life, we should be making things evident, the great truths of life and and death and the gospel to people. Uh, Lights are also used to guide, and that's what we should be to other people, shouldn't we? We should be saying, I can see the way, follow me. You're in darkness, you're in blindness, follow me, I can be your guide. Lights are also used as a warning, right? You're driving down the street and there's the flashing light warning you. There's some road construction here, there's some danger in the road. Here's a warning, a warning. That's what we should be in the world. Lights are also used to bring cheer. You know, think of somebody very down, very depressed. There they are sitting all alone in a room and it's dark and the curtains are drawn and there's just that, that, that almost smell of depression in the room. You know, you can just feel it. It's thick. Well, what's the first thing you do for that person? You turn on some lights, don't you? Because the lights cheer the place up. There's just cheer in a place when there's more light in it. That's how Christians should be. You know, when we come into a room, you shouldn't suck all the life out of the room. You shouldn't make the room darker for you walking into it. You should walk into the room and you should have such a joy, such a countenance about you, that when you walk in there, it's, it's light. You cheer the place up. Then you also think, too, lights are used to make things safe, right? You know, here's a place, a, a, a parking lot where cars have been getting broken into. And why are they getting broken into? Well, probably because it's pitch dark out there. What do you do? You put up some lights. You put up some lights and it helps make things safer. That's how we should be. That should be our presence in the world. And I want you to notice, Paul knew very well that these lights were in a bad place. And he doesn't say to those lights, oh, you're in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Oh, I don't know if you can shine very well there. He says, no, you're in a bad place, so shine all the more. Paul knew that their position made it all the more important that they shine. As a matter of fact, being in a dark place is a greater incentive to shine. That really should be our attitude in the Christian world. It's, it's as if, oh, brother, I'm in such a dark, dark place with the place I work. Shouldn't the most wonderful attitude for Christian be, well, praise the Lord, you can really shine brightly there. It's not the attitude we seem to immediately adopt, isn't it? But it's actually a very appropriate idea. Then as we do that, he goes on here. He says, holding fast the word of life. You know, when he says holding fast, you have the idea of holding on to something with a very tight grip, don't you? But, but actually, 
the, the idea could either be holding fast in the sense of holding with a tight grip, but it could also be holding forth in the sense of holding something out. I, I think of somebody holding out a torch, right? A torch that's illuminating things in a dark place, and he's holding fast to the torch, but he's also holding it out, right? It's not like he takes a flashlight and puts it under his coat. No, he's holding it out. He's holding it fast, and he's holding it out, the word of life, so that people can see it. And then he says, going on here into verse 16, so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. I want you to think about this very carefully. Paul's writing to the Philippians. He goes, my dear, dear brothers and sisters in the church at Philippi, I challenge you, work out your salvation with all fear and trembling. For it's God who's worked in you both to will and to do according to his good pleasure and do all things without complaining, without disputing and shine as lights in the midst of this dark and and perverse generation. He spells all of that and he goes, because if you don't, I'm going to really feel that my work has been in vain. You're going to make this apostle feel like a failure if you don't continue on in your walk and keep growing. You see, the idea that Paul's work might somehow end up to be in vain was a troublesome thought to him. Just do this. Just get out your concordance or... Does anybody use concordances anymore? You know, the books, you use the Bible search programs on the computer, right? Get out your Bible search program. I don't even know why we mention concordances anymore. Get out your Bible search program and look up vain. Just look up the word vain in English translations and see how Paul talked about things being in vain. I'll tell you, it'll be instructive to you. Paul lived with the troublesome thought that his work as an apostle, at least in some way, certainly not completely, but at least in some way, might end up to have been in vain. You see, Paul knew that his work really abided in people. Can anybody show me the great church building that Paul left behind? You know, the great Bible college campus that Paul left behind. You know, the great Christian television station or radio station that Paul, none of it. None of Paul's legacy was in institutions or buildings or foundations. All of his legacy was in people. And so he could very rightly say, if you people don't keep walking with the Lord, it's as if my work was in vain. And so he says, please, please, so that in the day of Christ, I have not run or labored in vain. Paul wanted to be able to stand before the Lord on the day of Christ and know that his work was fruitful. And this was only something he could be assured of if the Philippians continued to walk with the Lord. And you have to love this. You have to love the depth of Paul's concern for the spiritual condition of the Philippians. We almost want to shake Paul right now and say, Paul, can can we just remind you of something? You're in prison and might die at any time. Don't you have enough of your own problems to worry about? And Paul would say, no, I I have to tell you, I actually have very few problems concerning myself. My my burdens are concerning my my spiritual children and the churches that I've planted. So he continues on here in verse 17. Yes, and if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and the service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. For the same reason, you also be glad and rejoice with me. Now, in my mind, when I picture this, I picture Epaphroditus coming with the letter because apparently Paul dispatched the same man that the Philippians sent to him. Paul sent Epaphroditus back with this letter. 
So Epaphroditus comes and he says, well, let's get all the Christians together in Philippi. Paul wrote us a letter. And as he's, as he's reading this letter to everybody, as he reads these lines right here, yes, and if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and the service of your faith, tears are welling up in the eyes of the Philippians. You, you, you can hear them sniffling and, and, and choking on, on, on the tears and on the, the, the weeping that's overcoming. They're saying, Paul, do you think you're going to die? You're talking about being poured out as a sacrifice. Paul was here alluding to the practice that was current among both Jews and pagans in their sacrifices. They, they, they would often, whenever they would offer a sacrifice, let's say they would offer a goat or they would offer a, a, a sheep or a lamb as a sacrifice, with the meat that they would offer, they would also pour out wine. They would have it in a cup, probably a ceremonial cup, and they would pour it out as a drink offering. And how much of it would they pour out? Would they pour out a little bit and then take a drink and then leave it on the side for later? Never. When you poured out a drink offering, you poured the whole thing out. And so when Paul says, I am being poured out, actually in the Greek grammar, it's in the present tense. Right now, Paul says, I'm being poured out. By the time the Philippians got this letter, they had to have wondered whether or not Paul was already dead. He's showing that he may be executed at any time. And he says, I'm being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and the service of your faith. This is service of God. This is priestly service. The vocabulary that Paul's using here with the sacrifice and the drink offering and the service, it all has to do with a priestly idea as if Paul is a priest of the living God right here. And he says, listen, I know all of this, but did you notice also what he said here in verse 18? He said, I am glad and rejoice with you all for the same reason you also be glad and rejoice with me. I could just imagine the Philippians almost getting angry with Paul as they heard these words from the letter. What do you mean, Paul, rejoice? <laughs> You're just telling us that you may die at any time. But Paul would really believe that, right? He would say, listen, if my life is poured out as a sacrifice, then I want you to rejoice in it. Paul wasn't being morbid here. He wasn't asking the Philippians to take joy in something as depressing as his death. Yet he did ask the Philippians to see his death as something that would bring glory to God. He's really repeating the theme that we saw in the first chapter, right? The first chapter where he wrote, To live is Christ and to die is gain. It's as if this, and I love this attitude on the part of the Apostle Paul. It should be our attitude as well. Paul's saying, my life is going to be a sacrifice for Jesus Christ, either in life or in death. Right? If I live, my life is lived as a sacrifice for Jesus Christ. If I die, then I'm laying it down as a sacrifice for him. Either way, Paul says, that is a source of gladness and joy for me. And Philippians, I want it to be a source of gladness and joy for you as well. Now, when we talked about the very first chapter of the book of Philippians, I think I mentioned to you, I can't remember for certain, but I believe I mentioned to you that one of the predominant themes of this letter is joy. It's always talking about joy. It's always talking about rejoicing. And I want you to see how Paul so strongly believed in a joy that was not based on circumstances. That with a straight face, he could write to the Philippians and say, I may die at any moment, now rejoice with me. And he meant it because Paul genuinely believed in a joy 
that did not depend upon circumstances, but instead depended upon the greatness of God and His work in our life. Well, we're getting closer to the end of chapter 2, and in this second section here that we're going to consider tonight, the first section, Paul challenging them to, to live up to, to what God has done in them and to shine as lights in the world. Now Paul is going to consider in verses 19 through the end of the chapter, verse 30 actually, he's actually going to consider uh, three people. He's going to consider himself, Paul, and then he's going to consider Timothy, and he's also going to consider this man Epaphroditus that we've mentioned before. Look at verses 19 through 22. He says, But I trust in the Lord to send Timothy to you shortly, that I also may be encouraged when I know your state. For I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your state. For all seek their own, not the things which are of Christ Jesus. But you know his proven character, that as a son with his father, he served with me in the gospel. Well, I, I like how he begins verse 19. Paul's been talking about his imminent death, right? I may die at any moment, but he's careful to add for the Philippians' sake, but I'm trusting in the Lord. D don't think that I've given up. Paul isn't walking around the Rome and saying, okay, go ahead, cut it off right now, anytime. Not at all. No, Paul's saying, I'm trusting in the Lord. Matter of fact, you, you get the feeling that he feels he will be released. He says, I, I'm sending Timothy so, so that I can hear more about your condition. Timothy's my messenger. Epaphroditus has sent back for good. But Timothy, he's going, that he can come back and tell me your condition. And, and then Paul just compliments Timothy in the most wonderful words. Did you see what he said about Timothy? First of all, I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for you. Say, wouldn't you love that? Wouldn't you love the, the Apostle Paul to say about you, you know what, that guy thinks just like I do. I mean, you, you couldn't wipe the smile off my face for a year if I heard the Apostle Paul say that about me. Uh, yeah, that guy, uh, uh, that fellow David Guzik over there, he's like-minded with me. I'd say, wow, Paul, do you really think so? And then he goes on to, to talk about Timothy. He goes, For all seek their own, the things which are, and not the things which are of Christ Jesus, but you know his proven character. That as a son with his father, he served with me in the gospel. You see, Paul recognized how rare the kind of heart that Timothy was, that it was, that Timothy had was, that, that it was a heart that really sought the Lord and not his own things. Now, verse 23, But I, I hope to send him at once as soon as I see how it goes with me. But I trust in the Lord that I myself shall also come shortly. Paul says, I, I hope to send Timothy soon. I, I got to see if they're going to cut my head off, you know, first. But I, I trust that I'll be able to send him soon and that I can come myself. Paul probably here did not want anyone among the Philippians to believe that Paul was sending Timothy because he didn't really want to go himself. You know, Paul was a, well, he was a wanted man, right? Not only wanted by the Romans many times, but he was wanted by the churches. The churches wanted him. And Paul found it tough because he couldn't be in Philippi without not being in Ephesus, without not being in Colossae. You could see how this was a problem for Paul all the time. You know, well, he's not with us. I guess he doesn't really love us. I wonder if Paul didn't sometimes regret planting so many churches, you know, because he, he, he well, he must not love us because he's not with us. He had this problem with the Corinthians, and maybe he's worried about it with the Philippians. So, yes, I'm sending Timothy, but please don't think that it's not because I, I have given up on being with you. I want to be with you if I can. Now, verses 25 and 26. 
Yet I considered it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker and fellow soldier, but your messenger and the one who ministered to my need since he was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. From basically here to the end of the chapter, we run into the very interesting person of Epaphroditus. Now, Epaphroditus has to be one of the lesser known people of the New Testament. Wouldn't you agree? I don't know if you've ever heard a sermon on Epaphroditus before. I hope you have, because he's a wonderful character. But Epaphroditus is worthy of our attention. This man came to Paul from the Philippians as a messenger. And apparently, he became sick while he was with Paul. Did you see what it said at the end of verse 26? Because you had heard that he was sick. So let's get this idea in our mind. The Philippians say, oh, man, we love Paul. What can we do to help him? And somebody says, let's send him some money. And somebody else says, oh, that's a great idea, but let's send him some food, too. And they say, send him food? It's going to take a month just to get there. The food will be rotten by the time he gets there. Well, let's send him a cloak. Oh, that's a good idea. And then somebody says, I know the best thing. Let's send him money. Let's send him a cloak. Let's send him some books. But you know what would really be good for Paul? Is if we sent him one of us. Somebody to help him, somebody to keep him company, somebody just, Paul, can I help you in any way? Paul, can I hold up your chains for a little while? Paul, can I do anything for you? And they said, oh, that's a great idea. Let's send Epaphroditus. And Epaphroditus, yes, I'll go, I'll love to go. And so he made the dangerous journey all the way from Philippi to Rome, because any kind of travel over any kind of distance in those days was dangerous, wasn't it? And so he made the journey all the way from Philippi to Rome. And when he gets there, Paul can I help you? Yes. Oh, wonderful. It's so wonderful to see you. And then what happens? I don't know if it happened immediately. I don't know if it happened on the way there. I don't know if it happened a few days after he got there, a few weeks. But Epaphroditus became sick. And can you imagine if you were the Philippians and you heard that guy Epaphroditus, we sent him to be a blessing to Paul and Paul ends up having to take care of him. What kind of servant is he? Well, I think Paul wrote this to correct any misunderstanding on the part of the Philippians. So he, he says of Epaphroditus, uh, I sent to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker, and fellow soldier, right? Paul gave these important titles to Epaphroditus. He was a man that Paul valued as a partner in the work of the ministry. And you got to love those three titles. Brother, that speaks of a relationship to be enjoyed. Worker, that speaks of a job to be done. And soldier, that speaks of a battle to be fought. Man, it's great for Paul to say that about Epaphroditus. Brother, worker, soldier. And he says, listen, he was your messenger and the one who ministered to my need. Epaphroditus came and he did help Paul. He did bring the gifts that the Philippians sent with him. And he was of a service to Paul. Now, I need to... to point something out here. In these verses where it says, I consider it to send you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker, and fellow soldier, but your messenger and the one who ministered to my need, that specific ancient Greek word for ministered is the word that they would use for priestly service. All right. So can you see Epaphroditus um, preparing a meal for Paul? Can you see Epaphroditus making Paul's bed? Can you see Epaphroditus running errands for Paul? Can you see Epaphroditus in the market getting some foods that Paul really likes to eat? 
Can you see Epaphroditus doing all these things for Paul? And Paul's saying, that's priestly service. That's as if a priest was doing it unto the Lord. When, when he brought the gifts, when he brought himself, he was bringing a sacrifice. Now, Paul says, yet I considered it necessary to send you Epaphroditus. Well, this means two things. First of all, it means undoubtedly Epaphroditus carried the letter. Okay, But secondly, Paul wants to make it known that Paul considered it necessary to send Epaphroditus. It wasn't that he was sending him to get rid of him. No, Paul considered it needful. I didn't really want to send him to you. I would have rather kept him, but it was necessary for me to send it, and especially because you heard that he was sick. Now, Going on here, verse 27. For indeed, he was sick, almost unto death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. You see, the sickness of Epaphroditus was no small thing. It was almost unto death. Yet God had mercy on him, and he recovered. By the way, I I want to point out, I don't want to make too big of a point on this, but it is interesting to notice that there's nothing in the text to indicate that this was a miraculous healing. Right? Perhaps it was. But there's certainly nothing in the text to suggest to us that it was. This shows us that Paul would regard a healing that happened naturally or happened under the care of doctors as also being a gift from God and a mercy from God. But he says, But God had mercy on him, and not only upon him, but upon me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. God's mercy to Epaphroditus was also mercy to Paul. You see, if Epaphroditus had died, Paul would have had sorrow upon sorrow, not only because he had lost a valued brother, worker, and soldier for Christ, but also because it would have been because Epaphroditus came on behalf of the Philippians. Well, we sent uh, Epaphroditus to you, Paul. How did it work out? He died. Man, that's just a bummer. You just don't want to talk about that. So Paul was so happy. I can imagine Paul prayed like he never prayed before when Epaphroditus got so sick and sick unto death. Oh, Lord, I don't want to have to explain this to the Philippians. Please help him recover. And he did. So now look, verses 28 through 30. We're going to end the chapter now. It says, Therefore I sent him the more eagerly that when you see him again, you may rejoice and that I may be less sorrowful. Receive him, therefore, in the Lord with all gladness, and hold such men in esteem, because for the work of Christ he came close to death, not regarding his life, to supply what was lacking in your service towards me. Paul says, I sent him to you the more eagerly. Paul was eager to reunite the Philippians with their beloved brother Epaphroditus and to remind the Philippians to give him the proper recognition when he returned. Paul said, you hold such men in high esteem. Now again, I think that it was possible that the Philippians might think that Epaphroditus came back because he was a failure or Epaphroditus came back because he had disappointed Paul in some way, or he was so sick all the time that he couldn't do the work, Paul didn't want the Philippians to think that at all. You know, it's kind of like the guy who goes away to school, you know, and he's supposed to be studying, he's supposed to be doing a good job in school, and then he shows back back at home one day. Well, why are you back? Oh, you know, the, the principal of the school thinks I'm so great that he wanted me to come back home. 
yeah, sure. You know, they're, they're very suspicious of that, aren't they? And so when Epaphroditus just shows up one day, the Philippians are like, hmm, what happened here? Well, Paul wanted to assure them, no, 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 no. I eagerly sent him back. And you should hold him in high esteem. And this is great. And this is some of the most precious stuff about this man Epaphroditus. He says, because for the work of Christ, he came close to death. I want you to notice this. The work of Epaphroditus was mostly the work of being a messenger and a servant. It wasn't anything profoundly spiritual in the sense he wasn't preaching to thousands. He wasn't founding new churches. He wasn't, you know, preaching to people who had never heard the gospel, on and on, which are wonderful works. It was very practical work. He was a messenger and he was a servant. But Paul nevertheless very clearly says it was for the work of Christ. Because such things, when they are done, to the glory of God and for the work of God. They are truly the work of Christ. And then he uses a phrase there in verse 30 that is really wonderful. Now, I don't mean the phrase to supply what was lacking in your service towards me, although I think that that's significant there too. You see, there was something lacking in the Philippian service towards Paul. What was lacking? The actual doing of it, Right? He actually brought the support from the Philippians. You see, there was a lack in it until Paul actually had it in his hand. You know, we can say, hey, why don't we take up a collection for these missionaries? Yeah, wow, wouldn't it be a great idea? Boy, we should really do it. Let's pray about it. Um, Let's pray about it some more. Uh, Well, let's take up a collection finally. Okay, we take up a collection. Wow, we have it. Well, here it is. Isn't it wonderful that we have this collection? Isn't there something lacking in the whole thing? until that money is actually in the hand of the missionary. Well, in this sense, Epaphroditus fulfilled what was lacking in the service. And I think that's a wonderful heart. We should all have the sense that there's something lacking in our service until the job's done, right? When the job is finished, then my service is fulfilled. We should never be satisfied with the good intentions of a half-filled job. But... That's not the part that I think is so amazing. You know what I think is so amazing? Is the phrase here in verse 30 that says, not regarding his life. Now, the one sense, okay, I understand what that means, right? It means that Epaphroditus had the willingness to put the work of Christ first, and he put his own personal safety and his own concern second. That was the noble heart of Epaphroditus. Okay, I understand that. But you know, it's interesting. That ancient Greek phrase, not regarding his life, You know what vocabulary that comes from? It was not the vocabulary of politics. It was not the vocabulary of the athletic world, which Paul loved to use. It was not the vocabulary of, you know, seamen and sailors and ships. It was the vocabulary of gamblers. It it meant to risk everything on the roll of the dice. Paul wrote, Paul meant that for the sake of Jesus Christ... Epaphroditus was willing to roll the dice and gamble everything. So I'll risk it all for Jesus. That's where this ancient Greek phrase, not regarding his life, comes from. It was from the vocabulary of the gambler. And in the early days of the church, there was an association of men and women who called themselves the gamblers, taken from this ancient Greek word. And you know what they did? They were especially committed to visiting prisoners and the sick, especially those who were ill 
with dangerous and infectious diseases. You know, oftentimes when the plague struck a city, the heathen would throw the dead bodies into the streets and then they would flee the city in terror. But the gamblers, this group of early Christians, would come in and bury the dead and help the sick the best they could. And in doing so, they would risk their lives to show the love of Jesus. That's Epaphroditus. And you know what else it kind of shows us? This may be an indication. It's not much to go on, but it may be an indication that Epaphroditus' illness was the consequence of overwork. He was working so diligently for Paul that he became ill. But I love that phrase, not regarding his life, willing to risk it all on the throw of the dice, not for the sake of money, but for the sake of the glory of God. Maybe that's a good place to end for tonight. You know, you know how gambling works, right? You, you make a bet, you lay a wager, and you bet on something. You bet on your team winning. You bet on a number coming up. You bet on a card being turned over. Well, what are you willing to wager? What are you willing to bet? What are you willing to, to put on the line, so to speak, for the glory of God in the extension of his kingdom? Epaphroditus, he said, I'll put it all. I'll risk it all. I'll be one of God's gamblers, not regarding my life. I think the Lord wants us to have the same kind of heart. So let's pray that he would give us that kind of heart. Lord, we've seen it tonight, how you work in us, both to will and to do. And so, Father, we understand that your work begins, Lord, what happens inside of us. And so we say, Lord, work in us these kind of hearts. Work in us an Epaphroditus kind of heart. That, Lord, will take no sh- feel no shame in, in humbling serving. That, that Lord, will work a- as much as we need to, Lord. But, Lord, most of all, is just willing to put it all on the line for your gospel and for the glory of your kingdom. Man, Lord, we want to have that heart of the gambler. We think of the gambler, Lord, how excited he is to lay it all on the line. Now he just knows he's going to win, Lord, even if he's deceived and he's going to lose. (laughs) Lord, it's great to lay it all on the line for you because we know that we can never lose. So, Lord, so to speak, we we push all of our chips onto that line. We, We lay our bet down, Lord. Here is our life. Take it, Lord. It's the rightful wager that we lay before your kingdom. And show us how to live it out, Lord. That's what we've learned tonight, Lord, that we want to live out what you've put within us. Help us to do it for your glory, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.